As Jill said, I'm Chris. Uh, let me add my welcome to that of hers. Uh, welcome to Inner West. Um, let me just get this. Uh, for, the, for those who are usually expecting to see Pete, uh, he's uh, currently in Brooklyn, uh, enjoying the live action set of Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Um, but no, more, more seriously, he's enjoying a well-deserved break. Uh, so do keep him in your prayers as he uh, and Jackie uh, seek to have some rest after a very busy start to the year. Now, the other day I was, I was having a chat with, um, with a couple of people who will remain nameless, uh, but who are a, a, a lot younger than I am. Um, and I, I don't feel, feel like I'm very old. But they were pointing out to me that there's a whole bunch of things that I just have no idea, like that they just take for granted that I have, I, I've grown up in a different era. Um, and they, a few, few days later, one of them flicked me uh, this article saying that uh, I'm not what, who I thought I was. Now, with all the, all the generational theories, you know, Gen X, Gen Y, uh, apparently um, people have coined this new little generation called the Xennial Generation. I had no idea about this until about two or, two or three weeks ago. And one, one, of the, one of the things about this generation, which I've just found out that I'm a part of, uh, and other people who are probably a part of the same generation, is that there's all of these things that we got to do as kids that are just presumed as normal these days. Uh, so for example, when uh, Caleb hears the post, postie come to the door, he presumes it's either going to be a parcel, i.e. a present for him, or it's going to be a bill, which is boring. There's no sense for him that there is going to be anything other than those two categories of things, oh, and spam mail, um, which just goes in the, in the, in the bin. Uh, there, there's pretty much those only two categories of things that he is interested in when the postie comes to the door. Parcels, presents for him. All parcels are presents for him, I should say. Um, and bills which are just grown-up adult things that he can just ignore. Now, I, on the other hand, grew up, um, and when, when I was growing up, I got these things, these strange things in the mail called letters. I tried explaining it to Caleb the other day that there are these things where people write to you and they tell you things about themselves and about other things and then they put them in the post and send them off. And, and they're, they're on sheets of paper. They're, they don't, uh, they're not asking for money, um, unlike a bill, because um, they're the sheets of paper we get. And they're not including you know, a, a Lego set for, him, for you to play with, along with this piece of paper. It's just there to tell you about things, about stuff, about what they're doing. About, um, and to that end, one of our friends actually sent Caleb a letter and it, it, it basically said to Caleb, um, hope you're doing well, etc." You know, from another um, four-year-old. He, he almost had no idea what to do with it. It's just so, such a foreign concept. Whereas I grew up sitting on a letterbox at times because I knew that my grandmother in Canada had sent me a, a letter and I wanted to make sure that I was going to be the first person to be able to see that letter. So we had this old, um, in, in suburban Canberra, this old brick letterbox with a concrete plinth on top. And it was convenient to be able to sit on and wait for hours at a time sometimes to wait for the postie to come 
just in case that letter, which had been sent by my grandmother in Canada, had arrived. Maybe you think that I'm crazy for doing that, but hey, that's what floated my boat when I was about six years old. Um, but there's that sense in which finding out information, finding out news from other people, uh, being able to relate to other people. In our, in our information era, in our digital age, it's instant. You f open up your phone, you flick on facebook.com, and you go, oh, look, that friend who's over in the UK, or that friend who's over in the US, or that friend who's in Italy, they're doing this now, like right now. Like, oh, they're at a Beyonce concert at the moment, and they're live streaming it. That's the sort of access we have to information. No more sitting on letterboxes uh, waiting for, for news from overseas to come in. And so sometimes when I think we, we get to, to a letter like Romans, uh, which we're looking at this morning, we think in that, in that same sort of context, that this must be uh, some form of, um, exp of uh, long book, as a treatise or, or something else that is being sent to us as a present. And we miss a lot of the time the fact that this is Paul the author of the letter, who is wanting news and he's giving news, things that are happening every day, everyday things that are happening, and he's wanting to communicate with those uh, Christians in Rome. Now, this may seem foreign to many of us, I think. But for Paul, this was just de rigueur. And so sometimes I think we overread Romans, we over-egg the pudding, if you like. You chuck too many eggs in it and it goes all doughy and hard. When we presume that this is um, more, so much more than a letter, than merely a letter. Because we think in the email age that this is just, just another email, so it should be something that can fire off quickly. But it, as well, we run the risk of stripping out a lot of the, the thinking that goes behind it. If we think that, oh, this is only a letter. This is, this is something which has no background and content. And so I want us to be, uh, as we continue in this series on Romans, uh, that Pete started us off on last week, I want us to be, um, if you like, sitting on that letterbox. Because to some degree, you can't digest all of Romans in one sitting. You can't even digest the first four chapters which you are going through in one sitting has to be something that's digested slowly. It is, we, we need to expect what is coming next week. We need to expect what is coming when we talk about the next chapter and the next chapter after that. This is, it, it is something that we need to digest slowly, but it's not something that we can only just digest in a piecemeal. And so we come to Romans 1, verse 8. And I think some of the, the letter comes across here really clearly. Paul's writing to, to, to the Romans and he says, I thank my, my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. Paul's, uh, we, we don't know precisely when he's writing this, but he's um, in the Middle East, uh, off towards Jerusalem or in Lower Asia. Um, and he's writing this letter to the Romans who he has never met. But he's saying... I thank my God that I've heard about you through that slow medium of people walking places, traveling on horseback. 
sailing across the Aegean. He's hearing things. It's like the Middle Eastern internet, is how it's often been termed. People talking to other people, telling, telling them, oh, these Romans, all the way over there, even at what is essentially the end of the earth, as a Kensingtonite, um, on Friday we're out in Lilydale. That feels like the end of the earth. This is, this is more literally the end of the earth. For If you're living in Jerusalem or if you're living in, in, in lower Asia, this is you know, a long way away. But I think sometimes we miss something about this verse. This verse. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. When we read Romans, even though it comes straight after Acts, I think we occasionally think of Paul as the super apostle and only as the super apostle, the apostle to the Gentiles, which is what he expands on throughout Romans. But Paul has a background, a back history. And so this uh, desire of um, thanking God for, uh, through Jesus Christ for all of you is somewhat of a, a cosmic shift from where he was only a little while ago. You see, the backstory to Paul starts back soon after Jesus', Jesus death and resurrection. It starts back with a, a small church in Jerusalem, uh, growing people coming to believe in, in Jesus as the Messiah. And there's a young man called Saul standing by, getting angry. And as this culminates uh, in Acts chapter 7, we read that one of the uh, early Christian martyrs, a martyr called Stephen, is dragged before the Sanhedrin on charges of blasphemy and is stoned to death. And we first meet this man, Saul, when it says, and Saul was there looking after their cloaks. He was literally saying, oh, yeah, no, no, you, you've, you've got too, too heavy a coat on. It's impeding the, how you can throw that stone. Let me, let me take that for you. I won't, I won't throw the stone myself, but let me take your cloak so you can get a better aim, so you can get some better wind up on that rock. This is Saul, who we're introduced to in the first chapters of Acts. Now, Saul used to take interest in the church. He took great interest in the church. But he took interest in the church so that he could persecute them. Paul, on the other hand, which is his uh, Greco-Roman name that he has taken, his Greek name, he now thanks God for them. He's praising God for their faith. They're, that faith which is being reported all over the world, Saul would have taken great interest in that as well as we find out a few chapters later, as he certainly takes interest in the faith that the early church has in Damascus in order to go there and track them down and arrest them. But now he's rejoicing. He's, he wants to track them down, not so that he can put them in chains, but so he can impart a spiritual gift to them. He doesn't want to give them manacles and chains and, and, and bars, but he wants to give them a spiritual gift to make them strong. Now, this, this seismic shift, this massive 
shift in thinking, a massive shift in his heart, is not by his own working. Paul acknowledges that uh, throughout his, his letter to the Romans, that it was not by anything that he could have done, but, from, but by what God had done for him. And this is the, the core of the letter that he's writing to the Romans. Previously, I wanted to persecute you, he's saying. Previously, I wanted to lock you up, put you in prison. Now, I want to, to, to come and give you a gift, to be able to, to worship with you, to be able to, to teach you, to be able to help you. It reminds me, many years ago, uh, I had my 10-year school reunion. I didn't actually go to it, but uh, I watched it on, from afar on Facebook, <laughs> as you do. Now, one of the guys who, who was there, uh, I remember him fairly well as uh, a young rugby jock, a rugby, he was a full forward in, 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 in rugby. I know rugby makes absolutely no sense to about 90% of the people here. You know, uh, think AFL just with bigger muscles and, you know, more head clashing. Um, I remember him mainly because he was the, the school bully. He was the guy who would go around and literally extort people for their lunch money. <laughs> In year 12, no less. The number of uh, times that he was threatened with expulsion uh, and it was, only, it was revoked uh, by, at the last minute by uh, special um, intervention was... I, I, I can't actually count how many times that happened. And so 10 years on, I watched as a friend of mine posted on Facebook that the now Queen's Council in New South Wales, I won't name, name which, which Queen's Council, had come to the school reunion. He'd spent the better part of the last seven years of his life uh, working pro bono cases for refugees in New South Wales. I, I, at the time, I wasn't even sure that I, that I believed what had happened there. Um, he, he'd gone from this rugby thug to one of the most... Now, the person I know is one of the most caring and loving um, people I know. It's, it's, it was such a massive change in heart. And this is, this is what Paul is talking about uh, here. This is what Paul has been through. He's gone from persecuting the church through to wanting to impart a spiritual gift to them. He writes in verse 11, I long to see you so that I might impart some spiritual gift to you to make you strong. That is that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters. I plan many times to come to you but have been prevented from doing so until now. Side note, that prevented from doing so until now is essentially he gets locked up in prison, beaten, tortured, locked up and released, sent, goes off to plant another church, gets locked up, you know, they attempt to stone him, etc., etc., etc. You can read through Acts as to what uh, he fairly euphemistically says, I've been prevented in uh, coming to you until now. Uh, it's a, rather a prevention. In order, so he says, I'm prevented until coming to you until, until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, 
just I've had among the other Gentiles. It's a wonderful vision of where Paul has come from and, where he's, and, and now where he is. It's an, but I take it that this isn't just a transforming of his actions. Now, if it was just a transforming of his actions, that he was now just a person who was uh, wanting to, to, to give, give away as a philanthropist, a spiritual philanthropist, if you like, that the church in Rome would probably be, and rightly, be fairly suspicious of this. But I take it that, and as Paul expands on throughout the rest of his letter, that this is a change of heart, not just a change of mind. It's a change that goes deeper than just what he does, but it goes into his affections, what, who he loves. And through this, we can see that he loves not just God, but he loves God's people as well. He thanks God for them, and then he says how much he longs to be with them. Now, it's, it's probably worth at this point just a, a brief exposition on, or a brief considering of what this spiritual gift is. Now, right towards the end of the letter, in Romans 12, um, and this is one of, those, one of those things with how Roman letters work, Greco-Roman letters, you introduce things at the start and then you finish them, you know, five chapters later. All those things that, um, well, many of the things that I was told in English class not to do, you know, if you're going to introduce a concept, then deal with it within a chapter, otherwise your readers will forget about it. Um, we've, all of those English structures, we've kind of got to, got to do, um, put to one side as we read Romans. Paul will introduce things now and then only get around to dealing with them 12 chapters later. Paul does get around to dealing with a spiritual gift, very specific spiritual gifts in Romans 12. But what he's also doing throughout all of Romans, which culminates in those spiritual, specific spiritual gifts in Romans 12, is he's saying that all of these are an outworking of one spiritual gift. The way that he structures this is such that the gospel is the spiritual gift that gives spiritual gifts. It's, it is literally the gift that keeps on giving. That Jesus himself, his death and resurrection, is the gift that keeps on giving for the church, for the Romans, for Paul himself. But it's that gift that he wants to impart to them, that spiritual gift that he wants to impart to them, that needs to be unpacked. It's like a babushka doll or... Like an, an, one of those um, kids pass the parcel uh, wrapping games, which needs to be unpacked. Each layer needs to be unfolded so you see be better and you see uh, more clearly what is inside. You get little things along the way, but you see more clearly what's in the core. And so that's, what, uh, that's actually programmatic, and that's what we're going to be doing over the next eight weeks as we look through Romans 1 to 4. We're going to be peeling back each layer use the horrible uh, Shrek analogy of an, like appearing away layers of an onion. It's complex. Each layer reveals something new, but it all goes together as one solid piece. That solid piece is the gospel. 
And it's the reason why Paul says he's obligated to both Greeks and non-Greeks. He's eager to preach the gospel to them who are in Rome. He knows they're Christians already. It's not as if the gospel is just in order to get them over the line to become a Christian. These are, this is a church he's writing to, and yet he's eager to preach the gospel to them. And so that's what he's doing now. And so for the rest of the, this, um, this sermon this morning, I want to focus on two, two parts, those two verses, verses um, 16 and 17. Firstly, that Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. And secondly, that it is the gospel that brings about heart transformation. So verse 16, Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. Brief recap, Jew-Gentile distinction. Jews, the people of God traditionally, in the, um, as described throughout the Old Testament. Gentiles, the rest. I don't think anyone um, is of Jewish lineage here, so I can probably presume we're all Gentiles. Paul's audience in Rome, though, seems to be a mixed congregation of Jews and Gentiles. What Paul is saying here is that it is both Jews and Gentiles who, who the gospel is for. And Paul says he's not ashamed of that gospel. Now, in, in, Paul's, in Paul's day, he, the gospel of Jesus' death, life, death, resurrection, was everything culturally to be ashamed of. It, was the th- it contained all the elements that people in the surrounding culture would be like, oh, I can't, I can't get on this train because that is just abhorrent. It's just crazy. So for Jews, Paul's ethnic origin, the, the Jewish people, to, be, to follow someone who had been hung on a cross, someone who had been crucified, was completely unthinkable. In the Old Testament, we, we read in, in Leviticus, cursed is one who is hung from a tree. And this is exactly what uh, many people uh, threw at the early Christians. The early Christians who worshipped Jesus as uh, the Messiah, many people would say, but you, you can't do it. That's insane. Because he was hung on a tree. Cursed is one who was hung on a tree. QED, cursed is Jesus. That's what they're saying. Paul says to his Jewish background, I'm not ashamed of this fact. For the Greeks, on the other hand, to follow after someone who'd been killed was unimaginable. For them, deity, being a god, was about power. It was about being above the mortal world. In fact, the, the key prerequisite of being a god was that you were, you were immortal, that you could not die. For, his, for the Greek part of his audience, this is just a bit, and more than a bit, weird. In fact, we, we read when Paul goes to Athens in Acts 17 that he speaks of the resurrection, and they're like, what do you mean, the, the death and resurrection? This just, just doesn't happen. This is crazy talk. The whole point of a god for, for Greek society is that they don't die. And well, for the Romans, 
The Romans, for, the, for them to follow someone who'd been killed for an, for, ostensibly for an uprising, to be going against Caesar, was unreconcilable with their Roman upbringing. You didn't go against Caesar. There's a point, to, to, there's a reason why he's the, the imperator, the emperor. He is the emperor because he rules over you, so therefore you don't go against him. Culturally, it makes no sense to follow someone who says that Jesus is Lord over and above the emperor. And well, from a human point of view, if you're a Christian and you're saying Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not, I think most, pe- most, Jew- most Christians in Rome would know exactly where that ends up. And that's with a whole bunch of lions in an arena. And the lions are having the snack and you're not. You are the snack. But Paul is saying here that I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's not something he shrinks away from, that he um, wants to keep private to himself, even with all of these cultural pressures. I think that's sometimes what we feel in our 21st century society, that the gospel is just, uh, I can't say that, I can't believe that. That is, if someone finds out that I believe in Jesus, what's that going to do for me and my reputation? But at the same time, I think we often fall into the opposite trap. That we fall into the trap of going, well, I too am not ashamed of the gospel. I, just like Paul, am not going to be ashamed. We stick out our little chest and we puff out ourselves up and say, nope, not me, I'm not ashamed. I think both focuses miss the mark. Because what Paul says immediately after this, the reason why he's not ashamed of the gospel, one is because it is the power of God to bring salvation. There's only one reason why he's not ashamed. It's not because he can puff himself up and take the, take the pain or that he can shirk away from things. It's not, because it's not about him. It's not about Paul in this instance. It is about God and what God has done for him. Paul, in in his other letters, reflects, in in Galatians and Ephesians, reflects on what he did under his own power, how he persecuted the church under his own power. But here he is saying that it is only by God's power, God's work, who God is, what he has done. It is not heart-based self-righteousness that he is not ashamed of the gospel. It's not fear that he is ashamed of the gospel, but it is by what Jesus has done on the cross, what the gospel is, the power of God, that he is not ashamed. And I think for us too, it is right that righteousness that Paul talks about in the next verse is not because of what we do, but it is about who God is, and therefore we are not ashamed.
It's worth considering, though, what is righteousness? You get this, this word that comes up through, over and over again through Romans. Um, righteousness. Righteousness. And in our, our society, we kind of go, uh-huh. <laughs> we don't talk about being righteous, unless we're talking about being a self-righteous prat, uh, which, you know, actually displays a lot of the time what we, our society thinks righteousness is. When Paul's talking about righteousness here, in, his, in, in, um, in Romans, he's specifically talking about a concept of what the Greeks would call dike, dikaiosene, justice. Righteousness for Paul is about justice. But it is not just about justice between people. The, the scales, if you like, that stand outside the law court, judging between two people, weighing cases against each other. This is both horizontal righteousness, weighing um, things against, between people. But more importantly, it's justice between God and people, between God and his people. Righteousness, that state of being in a right relationship with God because of his justice to us. Now, if that sounds a little bit double-sided, it's, you're right. There are two sides of that coin. And that's what Paul is going to be expanding on in the next four sections. But first, he says... It is in the gospel that this righteousness is found. Again, with Greco-Roman letter writing, there's these little flagposts that are put up. It's a bit like golf. Uh, you, know, you know where the letter is going to go by the flag po post that is put up. Only, whereas in golf, you're aiming for the flag post, in Greco-Roman letter writing, there's two sets. There's one at the start and then one at the next point. And so from here, Romans 1.17, right through to Romans 3.21 is all one set of argument. Which because we don't, we don't want to be basically here for an entire Sunday for four and a half hours or five hours, we're splitting up into four sections. We'll think a bit more about that later. But here's the first flag, flag point, the first pivot point. In the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed. God's justice is on display here. It is a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Let's not kid ourselves here. This righteousness, this justice is not our own. Paul says the righteous will live by faith, but the righteousness that comes from the gospel is not our righteousness. It involves our righteousness, but it is not the total sum of it. It is God's righteousness which is extended to us. It is God's justice that is extended to us. Paul goes over and over again about this not being by what he has done, but by what God does.
Over the, first few, over the next few chapters, Paul's going to expound on, expand on that a lot. He's going to look at different aspects of how people, how humans, and I take it that we're all humans here. No one's not a human? That, no, that's good, just checking. We have no uh, lizards in the room who are pretending to be human. Every, he's going to look at all of the ways that he can think that humans attempt to be righteous, to be just with God, have a, a proper relationship with God on their own. He's going to examine them all. And frankly, he's going to find them all wanting. He's going to conclude in the end that all of that righteousness, just as he's already told us, is from God. The righteous, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. That gospel, which, is, which he's already gone through uh, from verses 3 to 6. Let me read it for us. The gospel regarding his son, who as to his earthly life, was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. It is through him we receive grace and apostleship to call the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. It is through him, through that gospel, that the righteousness is revealed. For Paul, it is not just about doing this or doing that a way of living, a way of trying to be in right relationship. It is about heart transformation. Paul saw the empty moralism that came from his attempts to do uh, all the things that he thought he was required to do. And as he reflects on, uh, if you read Acts alongside these next uh, two chapters you can see where he picks up a lot of his own experience. But for Paul, it is heart transformation. It is both that present reality of having a heart changed and the future trajectory of where, the, where you, our hearts are being changed towards. And so he writes to the Romans, the righteous, those in just relationship with God, will live by works. Wow, see your blank faces. No, the, the righteous will live by faith. Faith says something about someone else, something else, not about ourselves. For Paul, it is not about the legs that hold you up. It is about the chair that you sit on. It is about the work of, of someone else to support us, to be, bring us into right relationship with God. For Paul, the gospel isn't just a story. It is absolutely a story, but it isn't just a story. It is far more than that. The gospel is, in effect, what we call a speech act. It announces salvation, it shows the way to salvation, and it affects salvation for people. It enacts it in its hearers. 
The good news that Paul is, right, is announcing brings about righteousness in people's hearts and that flows forward into their actions. Ultimately, it brings about heart transformation. Not just mere moralism, that we need to do the right things, but a change of, and a renewal of our hearts. So I think when we get despondent, when we get saddened about the state of our world, when we get saddened about the state of our own hearts, when we struggle with not feeling like we can't do all of the right things, Romans says we're not alone. This is part of the human condition. But Romans also, Paul, when he's writing to the Romans, also says, this is far, the gospel says far more about the human condition than just the fact that we're left there. As the adage goes, the gospel meets us where we're at, but does not leave us where we are at. And so, when we are feeling despondent, when we are feeling challenged, Paul says to us, just as he says to the Romans, the righteous, those in just relationship with God, those who he calls Christians, those who are part of his family, will live by faith. By faith in what? By faith in Jesus. Let me pray. Father God, I thank you that uh, it is not by what we have done or even what we can do that we are made righteous, that we are put into right relationship with you. But I praise you that it is by what you have done for us in Jesus, in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. What you have already accomplished for us that brings us into relationship with you and corrects our relationships with each other. I pray that you would remind us constantly of that and that you would work it deep into our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.